All right, well, let me uh, offer a quick thanks to Aaron Alderson here for leading worship for us this morning. Uh, you guys, yes, very nicely done. That was wonderful. Um, you will notice we have a, a number of GBCers leading worship with us this semester. Ross is out some. Let me explain that to you. About two years ago when we got ready to launch the Southwood campus, we sought out someone who could help us in the area of worship. And Ross was a natural fit. He's got incredible ability and skill there. So Ross uh, committed to us for 18 months to lead our worship ministry here at the Southwood campus. I think that his presence here is a big reason that we launched so successfully. But now Ross's 18 months have come to an end, and as he communicated to us at the very beginning, Ross's heart actually belongs to community church. He's a pastor and elder at another church. That's the primary place that he serves. That's where his family goes, and so he's ready to get back to community church and really pouring in there. So it's time for us to find someone who calls Southwood home, who this is their church. So we're going to be having a number of people helping us with worship this semester as we look for Ross's replacement. And I would really ask you guys to pray for us, pray that God would lead just the right person to us, who will lead us in worship, who will lead our family in worshiping the Lord. So please do be praying regularly for us. Well, this morning we're going to return to the subject of prayer. We're going to continue our study of the prayer life of Jesus, learning to pray like Jesus prayed. I did a little research on prayer. Um, Latest statistics I could find or survey I could find is that about 90% of adults in the United States pray. And more than half of those pray every day or even more often, many times a day. Okay, so that's a lot of people, 90%. Uh, I couldn't find statistics for the world at large, but since pretty much every religion includes elements of prayer, that's probably a reasonable statistic for the world at large. So you got 6.8 billion people on the planet right now, 90% of that, that's 6.1 billion people who pray regularly. That's a lot of prayer going on on this planet. When you look at the human race, we are a species who loves to pray. Prayer is nearly universal, especially here in the Bible Belt. We pray all the time. We pray before meals. We pray as we're putting our kids to bed. We pray in church. We pray alone at home. We pray before football games over in Tiger Stadium. We pray all the time. Prayer is almost universal to the human race. Yet what's so ironic is that even though it's this thing that's incredibly frequent and important in our lives, we've actually received very little training in it. I was was thinking about prayer and what training I've received in prayer this week, and I I compared it a little bit to what I received training-wise before I got a driver's license. Before the state of Texas would let me get behind a wheel alone, I had to take a six-week class that was just mind-numbing, and, and then I had to do these, these classes with an instructor. I had to drive while she critiqued my method, and I don't know if your instructor was the same. She had her own brake pedal. It's like the, the worst invention ever. Every time I'd do anything wrong, she'd slam on it. I hated that brake pedal. We did that week after week, and then I had to go take a test to make sure that I could drive, and only once I passed the test would the state give me a license that, okay, you can drive. Now, compare that to prayer. Prayer is way more important than driving. I do a whole lot more praying in a day than I do driving, and yet I never took a class, not even in seminary, on prayer. Uh, I I never had an instructor who critiqued my prayer method. I never took a test on prayer. I never got a license on prayer. I just pray. We all do that. We, We just pray all the time. We grow up praying. We assume that we know how to pray. Prayer is one of the most common things in our life, yet we never stop and ask, do we really know what we're doing? 
Baylor University sociology professor Rodney Stark observed, prayer is one of the most common and unacknowledged activities on the planet. It's common to six billion of us, but we never really think about it. We never really think about, are we doing it right? Are we doing it well? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British preacher and theologian, said, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. I believe that's true. Prayer is the highest activity that mankind participates in. We, be, we come face to face with God. It's this most important activity of our lives. We all do it. We do it throughout the day. And yet, how often do we stop and ask, are we doing it right? We, we just assume that we all know how to pray. That's, that's a bad assumption. We need to know how to pray. Are we praying rightly when we go to the Lord? Are we praying in a way that honors him? Are our prayers effective? Are they powerful? Are they world-changing? We really need to know how to pray. There's nothing more important that we do with our lives. Well, fortunately, God has given us an answer to the question, how should we pray? It's the passage we're looking at this morning. You can turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is found in the Sermon on the Mount. We are looking at a very famous passage called the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, it appears just in the middle of this broader sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke 11, the same prayer appears. Uh, It's in a little more specific context there, right at the beginning of Luke 11. Luke tells us it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. So the Lord's prayer is Jesus's answer to the question or the the request, Lord, teach us to pray. How should we pray? Here it is, Lord's prayer. Now it's kind of ironic. It's neat when you think about it. Who is it that's teaching us to pray? It's, It's Jesus who is Who's who? He's God. So it's actually God teaching us how to speak to God. It's God teaching us to pray. Now notice, um, the Lord's Prayer is not Jesus' prayer. It's not Jesus' prayer for himself. The Lord's Prayer includes confession for sins. Jesus never sinned. This isn't Jesus' prayer. This is Jesus' model for our prayer. This is Jesus saying, here is how you should pray. It's his lesson on prayer. So let's, let's look at this passage in Matthew chapter 6. Let's look at this model prayer from Jesus. It starts in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, let me make one comment really quick. Probably some of you in your, in your text here, you have something at the end of verse 13. Uh, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's usually bracketed. It's bracketed because it's not actually there in, in the original Greek. It was added later by churches when they took this prayer and turned it into something that we all say together. They added this beautiful conclusion to it. But it's, it's not in the original text, so we're not studying that this morning. We're studying through the middle of, chapter th- of verse 13. Okay, so, so let's dig into the Lord's Prayer. Let's look and learn some lessons from Jesus' model prayer. There's, there's four lessons that I want to draw out of this prayer. The first thing that I want you to notice right from the very beginning of this prayer is it assumes a relationship with God. Jesus starts the prayer, Our Father. That presupposes something. That presupposes that you have the right to call God your Father. 
The prayer presupposes a relationship with God. As Father, we His children. Um, The reality is, though, who are children of God? Only believers. Only believers, right? Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We are not born onto this planet children of God. We're born children of wrath. We're separated from God by our sins. That means that even though 6.1 billion people are praying on this planet, there aren't 6.1 billion prayers being heard. Because the majority of those people, sadly, are not yet God's children. God does not hear their prayers. They cannot pray to our Father. Because they are, as of yet, children of wrath. Fortunately, there is a solution to this problem. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. We are not born children of God. We become children of God when we believe in Jesus. When we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the essential information about Jesus, that he's the son of God, he died for our sins, and rose from the dead. When we believe that, when we quit trying to earn our way to God through all these different religions, through works, through whatever it might be, when we simply set aside our works and believe that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, then at that moment, we become children of God. We're born into God's family. Okay? All you have to do to become a child of God is simply pray. God, I believe I am a sinner. I cannot earn my way to you, but I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. That, that is actually the one and only prayer that God will hear and answer from an unbeliever. It's a prayer of faith. That's, that's the only one that makes it through. The rest of their prayers don't because they're not yet children of God, but that prayer of faith, God save me, I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. That's the one prayer that God hears, and then he makes you his child. Okay, so the Lord's Prayer begins with the assumption that we have a relationship with God. This is prayer for believers, for those who can rightly call themselves children of God. I know, I know in our world that's a pretty offensive statement that all these other prayers are not making it to God, but the Bible's very clear. Prayer only works if you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the first observation we can make from the Lord's Prayer. Second observation I want us to make is this prayer is meant to be a model, not a formula. Now, unfortunately, how has the Lord's Prayer been used in the last couple thousand years? as a formula that you repeat, that you parrot over and over to God. We, we memorize the words and then we say it over and over again without thinking, without meaning. Okay? Jesus actually critiques that type of prayer. Look back at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus says, don't just memorize the words and repeat them over and over again to the Father. That's not the kind of prayer I'm looking for. That's not the kind of prayer that honors God. So as we go through this prayer this morning, what I want you to, to grab onto is not the exact wording, but the ideas behind the words. That's what matters. This isn't a formula to be repeated. We know that because Jesus leaves a lot of things out of this prayer, actually. This is a very short prayer. It's a very focused prayer. Notice it does not include in it anywhere thanksgiving. 
There's no thanksgiving to God. We know we should be thanking God. There's no specific confession of sins. God, I did this. I did this. I acknowledge these things are sins. There's none of that. There's no intercessory prayer for other people. None of that stuff is in this prayer. So we know this is not the end-all, be-all prayer. This isn't the prayer you should memorize and, and repeat over and over again to God. This prayer is simply a model that teaches us the basic foundational attitudes that should make up our prayer. That's really what we want to get out of this prayer. We want to follow the attitude of Jesus in this prayer, not the exact wording. Okay, so don't just memorize this prayer. Get down to the attitudes that Jesus prays with and integrate those into your prayer life. That's the goal here. Not just memorization, but getting the attitudes right. And that's really what we're going to spend the rest of the morning doing, looking at the attitudes that Jesus conveys in this prayer. The prayer is composed of seven requests that break down into really two parts. The first part, verses 9 and 10, second part, 11 through 13. Those are the two halves of the prayer. So we're going to look at each of those. We're going to start with the first half. How does this prayer begin? Well, look with me at the first line. Our Father who is in heaven. Uh, Very significant here. Our Father is a term that no Jew would use. Our Father. When Jesus prays this address, our Father, he's calling out to God as our Father, Jesus would be quite shocking to his audience. Jews revere God. They respect God so much that they would never use personal terms. They would never say, our father. They might say the father, but never our father. Jesus starts this prayer from a position of intimacy. He says, you can go to God as your father. He cares about you. This was shocking, this language that Jesus used. He wants us to approach God as our father, but notice who our father is. He is in heaven. Okay, that, that's really a, a term or a position of respect and reverence, saying our father is no one to be trifled with. He he is in heaven high above us. He rules over heaven and earth. That's the implication here. I think that Jesus is pointing us to a passage like Ecclesiastes 5.2. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So this, this address from Jesus, our Father who is in heaven, it's actually theologically very, very significant. It conveys two things. It balances two things. First of all, intimacy. He is our Father, but then respect, reverence, accountability. He's our Father who rules from heaven. We should have few words. We should be careful about our words because he's in heaven. He's high above us. Okay, so right from the beginning, you have Jesus balancing intimacy and reverence for God. That's where the prayer starts. Then Jesus moves into his requests. And he has, in the verses we're going to look at, the first half of the prayer, three requests that are really more like, each one is more like a plea. You're, you're, you're turning to God and you're saying, God, please do this thing. None of these pleas are, are for, for God to do stuff for me or for us. They're more for God to act in the world. Let's look at each of them. The first plea, the first line of request, hallowed be your name. That's a very odd phrase in English, so let me explain what's going on there. First of all, start with the word name. Uh, Name in scripture refers to a person. It refers to who they are. When you're talking about the name of God, it's not just his name, Yahweh. It's who God is. The name of God in scripture represents all of God's attributes, all of God's actions, his character. When it says, hallowed be your name, Jesus is really saying, hallowed be you. 
May you be hallowed. That's the idea here. But what in the world does hallowed mean? That's a very strange verb for us. Hallowed means to regard something as holy. Not to make it holy. It's already holy. But to regard it, to respect it as holy. Uh, Holy means set apart. That God is holy means he is different from his creation. He's set apart from this sinful, broken, fallen creation. The fallenness of this world does not infect God. It does not touch God. He stands removed, high above from that. He stands high above in perfection. So to hallow God means to regard God as perfect. Regard God as holy. Regard God as set apart in the heavens high above. Uh, We get a, a great, very helpful verse in Isaiah. It helps us to understand, here's what Jesus is praying. That they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify or set apart the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. I think that's an easier way to translate this. The word holy is kind of hard for us to grasp. Make holy what's going on. It's really, Jesus is praying, may all the world stand in awe of you. That's the idea of this line. May all the world stand in awe of you. May they see who you are and be so overwhelmed by your awesomeness, by your holiness, by your power, by your perfection, that they simply stand in awe before you. That's the first part of this prayer. Second part of the prayer is similar. It's a plea with God. May your kingdom come. Now, kingdom is, is in its simplest form, it's just the rule of God. May your rule come. Now, what's going on there? God is sovereign. He rules over the universe as God. And yet, what happened in Genesis 3? Satan led a rebellion of humanity against God. God could have crushed it at that moment, but he chose not to. Instead, God allowed the earth to come into rebellion. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Who is the ruler of this world right now? It's actually not God. It's Satan. Even though God is sovereign, yes, he's sovereign, he has allowed the earth to come under the power of the evil one. The earth is in rebellion. It is ruled by a usurper to the throne who is Satan. And as of yet, God has not come and crushed the rebellion and put that usurper in his place and extended his rule. But this prayer is for that. This prayer is, God, bring your rule back to earth. Reestablish your rule over this world. And, and this prayer really has two senses, a, a present sense. Okay, God, how are you reestablishing your rule over this world? Well, first of all, through evangelism. In the lives of individuals, as you claim individuals who are born as children of wrath into the kingdom of Satan, as you claim them, as you open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, as you save them, you are transferring them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your son. So first of all, Jesus is praying when he says, let your kingdom come. He's saying, let the lost be saved. Let men and women who don't know you come to know you, come to be part of your kingdom. Uh, This to me is one of the best biblical paradigms or or teachings, prescriptions for the fact that we should pray for the lost. We should pray for our relatives who don't know Jesus. We should pray for our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends who don't know him. We should pray that God's kingdom would come to their lives, that God would open their eyes and transfer them from the domain of Satan into the domain of his son Jesus through the gospel. So that's the first sense of this, present tense, prayer for the lost, but it also has a, a future sense This is second, a prayer that Christ would return. That's the next thing to happen in history. Christ is going to come and he is going to crush this rebellion. 
That's what we look forward to in the end times. Christ will return. He will wipe out this rebellion. He will put the usurper in his place. And he will bring the rule of God back to the world as a whole. Okay, so the first thing we pray is, God, may all people stand in awe of you. Second thing, may your rule be reestablished on earth in the lives of individual men and women through evangelism and through, in the world as a whole when you send your son back to earth. Third plea that Jesus puts forth before God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, let me ask you for a second. How is God's will done or performed in heaven? Perfectly. God's will is what he desires. That's actually the same in Greek, will, desire. Uh, His desire is perfectly accomplished in heaven. God's will is done perfectly in heaven. There is no rebellion in heaven. Everything that God desires is perfectly performed in heaven. But how about on earth? Is God's will or his desires perfectly accomplished on earth? No, they're not. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that God desires all men to be saved. Is God's desire being fulfilled? No, because men and women continue to rebel against God. They continue to reject the gospel. God desires for all to be saved, but not all are saved because this world is in rebellion. So this prayer is really, in a sense, a repeat of the let your kingdom come. It's related to that. It's saying, God, may your desires be perfectly accomplished on this earth just as they are in heaven. But this particular line, um, it's very personal too. If I'm praying for God's desires to be perfectly accomplished in this world, what does that assume about me? It assumes that I want God's desires accomplished in my own life. This, This third plea, this third line really begins with me. God, if your will is to be done in the planet, then let it be done first in my life. You can't pray, God, may your desires be accomplished in the world while I hang on to this sin over here. While I do my own thing over here, you can't pray that. That's hypocritical. To pray, God, let your will, your desires be accomplished means first let them be accomplished in my life. This is the prayer we read about last week, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is is turning to the Lord right before he is betrayed and arrested and executed. And he prays to God. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus practiced this kind of prayer. God, may your will, may your desires be performed on earth and let it begin with me. In my own life, let me do your will. Let me perform your desires. Okay, so I think we can summarize the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Here's really what Jesus is saying. This is kind of my own translation to flesh some of this out. Our Father who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. I think that's the first half of the prayer. Now, if we step back and we look at that, I want us to notice something. What is the focus of the first half of the Lord's Prayer? Is it on us? Is it on our, our needs, our wants, our lives? No, it's not. first half of the Lord's Prayer is totally focused on God. It's totally focused on God. All four lines convey, first, worship. We are worshiping God as Father who is in heaven. We are worshiping God as holy, as awesome. We are worshiping God as the one who has the right to rule. His will should be done. These lines are first lines of worship. Second, they're lines of submission. Every one of them is a a line of submission. God, you are Father, we are children. 
God, you are holy. You are set apart. God, you are worthy of ruling. God, let your will be done, not just in earth, but in my life. What that's teaching us, the first attitude with which the Lord prays, again, it's the attitude we want to follow, not the exact words. The attitude, the first attitude of Jesus' prayer is worship and submission. This is so significant. Prayer starts for Jesus with his eyes not on us, but on God. It starts in worship to God. It starts in acknowledging God's holiness, that he is in heaven, that he is worthy of ruling over the earth. It starts with a focus on God's position and his priorities. This is very significant. We're going to see in a moment the second half of the Lord's Prayer, as we've already read, turns to us. Jesus' eyes turns to us, our needs. It's, it's a prayer of petition in the second half of the prayer. But it's very significant. That's not where Jesus starts. He doesn't start by focusing on our needs. And here's why. If our prayer lives are dominated by our needs, if we pray over and over again and all, all we pray for is, God, give us what we need, then our prayers become idolatrous. When, when prayer is about me, then that says, God, I'm really the center of the universe. You exist to serve me. You exist to meet my needs. God, give me this. Give me that. God, give her this. Give him that. You're, it's all about humanity. It places mankind at the center of the universe. If prayer begins and ends with our needs, it is idolatrous. Jesus is saying, don't pray idolatrous prayers. Start your prayer, begin your prayer with your eyes focused on God. It's about him. Put God at the center of the universe. Once you do that, then you can turn to your needs. Okay, that, that's a, a, an incredibly helpful paradigm in prayer. It starts with our eyes fixed on God. Put God at the center of the universe. You are Father. You are Lord. You are King. Your will be done. Then turn to your own needs and the needs of other people. Don't put human beings at the center of the universe in your prayer life. Put God there. So it starts with worship and submission. That's the first and most important part of the Lord's Prayer. But then he does turn to petition. He begins to ask the Lord for things. And that's the second part of the Lord's Prayer. It includes three requests that that reflect dependent petition to the Lord. Uh, Jesus is turning to the Lord and asking for the Lord to do things in our lives that only he can do. God, give us these things that we need. Let's look at the specific requests, the specific petitions that Jesus makes of the Father. The first one, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, this is a line that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. Uh, let me, let me kind of explain this to you. When Jesus mentions bread, he's really talking about food. It's more a general term. Give us today our daily food. Now, the, the adjective daily is a really odd word. It only appears here and in the parallel passage in Luke 11. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible or any of Greek writing. Nowhere else. So scholars try to wrestle with it. What does it mean? I think what this word daily means is Jesus, give us the food which we can't live 24 hours without. Give us the food we must have for this coming day. That's what the line means. But if we're honest with one another, we've got to say, man, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't need God to give me food so I can live 24 hours. First of all, I've I've got enough stored here that I'm going to make it for a while. Second of all, I've got food in my refrigerator. I've got food in my pantry. It could last me days, if not weeks. Third, if that runs out, I've got money in the bank. I can go buy myself food. So what is Jesus praying for here? Well, it's helpful to know his audience. Jesus is speaking to first century Jews. 90% of first century Jews are what we would call poor. They didn't own land. 
They couldn't go farm and produce crops to feed themselves. They had to work. And in a given day, when they worked, they earned just enough to cover the necessities of their family for one day. They could go buy food for one day. Okay, Jesus' audience literally lived hand to mouth, day to day. If his audience got sick and couldn't work, they didn't eat. They were literally dependent upon God to provide food or their family would die. Starvation was a frequent thing back then. 90% of the population is poor. None of us would qualify as, as poor like they were. Absolutely hand to mouth, day to day, will die if God doesn't provide food. So what is Jesus praying here? He's praying, God, provide for us the things that we need, the material and physical goods that we need to make it through another day. For us, it's not food. And if if worse comes to worse, we can always go to McDonald's. We have options with food. But there are things that we need from God, physical and material things. For most of us, we depend upon God to, to provide money to pay the bills. God, we need you regularly, daily, to provide the money that we need to pay our, our mortgage, to pay our credit card bills, to pay our bills. Uh, Lord, we're, we're dependent upon you day to day to give us a job, especially in this economy, to, to help us to keep our job or to find a job if we've lost our job. That's what this prayer is about. It's turning to God in dependence and saying, God, if you don't provide for my material and physical needs, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be able to serve you. My life is going to fall apart. My family's going to fall apart. God, only you can provide. Please give me the physical and material things that I need to live through another day. That's what this first prayer is about, physical and material necessities. Not so much bread for us. We've generally got that covered. It's bigger. Give us the money we need to pay our bills. Give us the job that we need to earn money. Please, God, provide for our physical and material needs. Okay, so that's Jesus' first petition of the Lord. He goes on from there. The second petition is found in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, this is a prayer for forgiveness. Now Jesus uses the term debt and debtors. That's, that's financial debt, but he's using it metaphorically. He's not talking about money here. We know that from the verses that follow the prayer. Verse 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly father will also forgive you. He's talking about transgressions, sins. God, forgive us of our sins as we also have forgiven others. Okay, th- this is the prayer of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This isn't gospel kind of confession, gospel kind of forgiveness. Remember, the Lord's prayer is to be prayed every day. This is not the prayer of the gospel. God, your son died for me, forgive me. That's not what this is about. This is for believers. We've already been forgiven through the, the blood of Jesus Christ, but every day we sin and that sin places upon us the stains of immorality, the stain of sin, of transgression. And that stain of sin, it, it prevents us from having close fellowship with the Father. And so we pray every day, Father, cleanse me of that sin, remove that guilt, remove that shame so that I can come back into your presence. That's what this prayer is about. It's daily confession of sin. Father, cleanse me of this sin. Now, you may notice this verse is a little theologically challenging because Jesus puts forgiveness from God in a place of contingency on our forgiveness of others. He actually makes that explicit. We read verse 14, but look at verse 15. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Okay, so if if I'm not a forgiving person, does that mean that God leaves me 
in my sins? A lot of people would say, yeah. If we're not forgiving people, we are left in our sins and we either lose our salvation or we prove that we never had salvation to begin with. What do we do with this? There's many places where Jesus puts God's forgiveness of us contingent on our forgiveness of others. What do we do with that? We're going to have to come back in two weeks. We're going to have a sermon. We're going to study forgiveness and grace in the teachings of Jesus. So I'm going to leave you hanging on that. Come back. It's It's fascinating. Uh, Okay, so second thing that Jesus prays for, God cleanse us of our sins daily. Provide the forgiveness that keeps us able to come into your presence. Third thing that Jesus prays for, verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or uh, from evil should really be, there's a the, the there, from the evil one. Deliver us from Satan is basically what this is saying. Uh, What is Jesus really praying for here? It's helpful uh, if you have an idea about how temptation works. Many of you are studying the book of James, and you know God never tempts us. He never leads us into temptation. What's going on in this verse? Well, uh, let me give you a little diagram. I, I think in diagrams. So here's a diagram that explains how temptation works. In life, God's people are going to undergo trials over and over again. That's just life in a sinful world. We are going to undergo hard things, challenges. That's actually God's will for us. I don't know if you knew that, but God wills for us to experience trials in this life. Not in heaven, be perfect there. But in this life, we experience trials. We experience trials, as James tells us, because they build endurance. They lead to good. So much good, in fact, that we should rejoice in our trials. That's really the goal that God has in our trials, is that we would succeed. We would pass these tests. We would prove faithful to God, and that would lead us to victory and honor and growth. When trials come up in our lives, if we respond rightly, it's a reason for rejoicing because it leads us to growth and endurance and it brings glory to God and honor to us. Um, But God not only desires us to succeed in our trials, he also gives us strength. This is Galatians 5, the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon us to give us strength to succeed in the trials that we encounter in life. God wills for us to have victory and gives us the strength to have victory. Unfortunately, though, in the midst of trials, God is not the only one working. There is also another element. There is Satan who leads the efforts of this world and the efforts of our sinful flesh to lead us in a different direction. God is working to lead us towards victory. Satan is working to lead us towards failure, towards sin, towards disobedience. That process by which Satan leads us is what we call temptation. Temptation is enticement towards sin. He is enticing us down this path that leads us to failure and dishonor. And so when we face a trial, there is a choice that we have. Will we rely upon God for his strength to to persevere us, to help us to have victory? Or will we not rely on God and instead give in to temptation, give in to enticement from Satan and from this world and from our flesh that leads us towards sin and failure? Jesus is basically praying, final petition, God, don't let us go down the red path. Don't let us be enticed by temptation. Deliver us from the aims of the evil one, from the aims of Satan who wants to take this trial and turn it to sin. Instead, persevere us in victory. Give us strength to overcome. This final prayer of Jesus is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. 
So the final petition we make of God on a regular basis is God give us strength, deliver us from the temptation of the evil one and give us strength to obey and persevere. Okay, so I think we're ready to kind of summarize the Lord's Prayer. Again, it's not about exact wording, it's about ideas. Uh, I want to give you a a little bit of homework, a little challenge. Uh, I would love for you all this week at some point to sit down with this passage and rewrite it in your own words. Rewrite it in your own words that explain how you understand what Jesus is saying. That will make it fresh for you. Here, here's my own words. Don't just copy what, what I've done here. But here's my attempt to rewrite it in my own words to make the Lord's Prayer fresh and meaningful to me. Here's what I think he's saying. Our Father who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. Give us what we need for this coming day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. And do not let us fall to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus' prayer is an incredible model. It's a perfect balance of worship and submission and petition. Worship and submission and petition. Begins with our eyes focused on God. He is at the center of the universe. He is great. He is God. We are not. We worship him. We submit to his will in our lives. And then we turn and we ask him in dependence, God, give us the things we need. Not just spiritual things, but physical things. What we need to make it through the day. You care about us. Give us the things that we need. Now, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion with one another. If the men will go back and get ready for communion. Uh, Again, as I mentioned earlier, communion is our opportunity to celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. But what we're going to do after communion is a little bit different this morning. Uh, There's one thing about the Lord's Prayer that I haven't yet pointed out to you. Have you noticed that all you see in this prayer is not me, but our. Not my, but our. This is a communal prayer. Did you see that? It's second person plural, not singular. This prayer is a good model for our private prayer. This should guide your private prayer life. But Jesus gave us this prayer primarily to pray as a community. This prayer was always meant for us to do it together. So after the Lord's Prayer, we're actually going to stand and recite this prayer together. Again, it's not about the exact wording. It's about all of us joining into the attitudes of worship, submission, and petition that Jesus modeled for us. Now, let me challenge you again. As I mentioned, my homework for you guys is to go home and rewrite the Lord's Prayer in your own wording. If you are a parent What I'd love to challenge you guys to do, rewrite it in your own wording and then gather with your kids as a family and pray this prayer together. I believe that one of the reasons that so many of us don't know how to pray is that we don't pray together. It used to be, especially if you study Judaism, fathers would gather their children and they would recite prayers together, not because you're trying to memorize words, but because you teach your children through doing it together. So rewrite the Lord's Prayer in your own language and then gather together, maybe over dinner or maybe at the end of dinner. Jews love to pray after meals. You can totally do that. The end of dinner, gather together and recite with your children your own version of the Lord's Prayer. That's how they will learn how to pray. You pass on to them these attitudes of Jesus Christ, the priority of worship and submission, the willingness of God to hear our petitions. You teach them to pray like Jesus as you do it together. So we're going to do that at the end, but seriously, I challenge you, rewrite it in your own words and then pray it as a family. That's how it was meant to be used. This is our model to teach us and for us to teach our children how to pray. Okay, as the the men come forward and we gather to celebrate communion, as they pass the elements, let me ask you to spend a little bit of time prayerfully thinking about two things. 
Just to remind you guys, what is communion about? It's a celebration of two things. Number one, the death of Jesus for us. That Jesus died for us, that he shed his blood for our sins. So spend some time thanking God for the death of his son. But what also is communion? It's also a celebration of the return of Christ. Communion is our opportunity to say to God, God, we so look forward to Jesus returning to earth. We so look forward to your kingdom coming from shore to shore of this planet. So spend some time thanking God for the gift of his son and spend some time asking God to send his son quickly. That's what communion is about. We'll do that for a moment and then we'll celebrate it together. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord God, we thank you for this time to celebrate the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Thank you so much that by his blood we are cleansed, we are healed, we are forgiven, we are saved, we are made your children. Thank you that your ultimate son died so that we could become your sons as well. Thank you, Lord, that we have his return to look forward to. We, beyond all people, have hope in the future because we know that while this world lies in rebellion at the moment, it will not always be so. But Jesus will return and perfect all things. He will lead us in victory, Lord. Thank you so much for that, for the good days that we have to look forward to in Jesus' return. We pray that you would send him soon, Lord. Let Jesus come soon. Thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We pray all these things in his name. And now if you all will stand, we'll join together in prayer following the model of our Lord Jesus. If you guys will follow me. Our Father, who is in heaven, please cause all people to stand in awe of you. Please bring your kingdom to earth and accomplish on earth and in us all that you desire. Give us what we need for this coming day. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive others. And do not let us fall to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. You all are blessed and dismissed.